Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. All you DGens deserve to be burned by these words. Yo, I emerge and ensure that haters be served. Don't you step into the chamber with me with weak nerves. Stop waiting. I spy the block trades you're not making. Get in line and stop beating. Yo, I'm top rated. I'm block native, stacking rhymes to drop haters. Matt Cutler. Yo, my men pools are not vacant. I'm flipping coin like bacon when I spit a little flashy. And I'm picking through the bones of all the people who attacked me. I'm wetter with my flow than the ocean waves crashing. And my words will never die because my rhymes are everlasting. You couldn't put it past me. Don't you even start. Catch me down in Nashville rolling deep in Bitcoin Park. Or see me walking Wall Street looking very devious. Or sipping on a beer up at Publius Keblius. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmware research at Galaxy Digital. Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brains. We have a great show for you today. Matt Cutler, CEO of Block Native, a fascinating Ethereum infrastructure company. He is our guest. We'll get into it with him on MEV, block building and the future of Ethereum development. Christine Kim from Galaxy Research will join us for that interview. And of course, we'll check with our good friend, Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading, as always, to talk markets. But before we get to all of that, I need to remind you to please refer to the link to the disclaimer in the podcast notes and note that none of the information in this podcast constitutes investment advice or an offer recommendation or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Really looking forward to this one, so let's hop right into it. Let's go now to our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. As always, my friend Bimnet, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. What's going on this week? Uh, well, you know, I think... The most important thing to happen this week is the breakdown that you've had in long-end U.S. fixed income. That's been driven by a combination of really robust data out of the U.S. in addition to um, additional supply above and beyond what the market had expected being announced by the Treasury. So this is them selling new uh, issuance of bonds to refill their coffers after the um, debt ceiling stuff? Uh this is regular course of business. Like the debt ceiling is a weird thing. Yeah. But every quarter of the treasury tells you how much of each particular issue they're going to issue. So they'll be like, oh, this month we're going to sell $40 billion of tens. Mm-hmm. Next month we'll sell 45. And so the treasury produced those figures today and they were a little bit higher than expected in the U.S., um, particularly for, for the longer duration um, profile uh, securities. And we already had we were coming off of really strong data, like ADP today uh, printed like around 340,000 jobs gained wow. month on month versus expectations of like 192. Uh, you had, uh, you know, PCE data come out la- late last week that was showed that we're still in inflation. Um, like there was no like there wasn't anything that tells you that, oh, we're like we can cool down. OK. Uh, and, you know, durable good orders were really strong. And then you've got you know un- the, the employment data that's coming out that this Friday, um, and you also there was one bit of data that was a little um, contrary to this price action. It's known as the Senior Loan Officer Survey (SLUs). Um, <laughs> it's basically a survey that's used to gauge uh, credit conditions. Yeah. So it asks a bunch of bank uh, lending managers and folks that are in charge of that that process. Like, what's going on with credit? And basically, they're like, credit's contracting. And that was one of the things that Powell highlighted in his right. speech is that, you know, we are seeing a pass-through of high interest rates into credit markets. Which they want, right? That, that tightening, it's, that's, helps, that's monetary tightening. That's how you transmit monetary policy into yep. the real economy, yep. right? And so um, you are seeing that tightening. Now, 
like with stocks still close to the dead highs and a historically tight labor market though mm -hmm. like just because you are seeing credit contraction the question is will that translate into a decline in core inflation yeah and right now it, it's yet you know, it's still tough to say. I just saw a headline that was like Americans are just still happily spending a lot of money. Tons of money. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's like, you know, one, the, the social transfers that happened during COVID. I mean, it's yeah. still expansive. But the big part is, uh, and it's a new point that, you know, I just came across from, uh, you know, a hedge fund newsletter. But it's really hard for companies to fire people yeah. when their stock is at all time highs. Right, or close to it. It's hard right? to say. So we have to the tighten Nasdaq, the belt. Yeah, yeah, we have to tighten the belt. Wait, you're tightening the belt and your you're, stock's up 40% on the year? What? How yeah. does that translate? Right, right. Uh, and so, like, I really think the crux of the inflation issue comes down to the tightness in the U.S. labor market. Mm -hmm. And that tightness isn't, like, I don't know how that's going to change. It's, we're getting tighter and tighter. Yeah. Um, and job we had job opening data this week. We still have 9.6 million job openings in the US. And how many people that are is looking for jobs? Roughly, there are 1.7 jobs uh, per person looking. Wow. Wow. Right? So and the pricing so, power is still in the hands of the employees at this employee, point. And so yeah. that's why you have to pay real close attention to average hourly earnings, yeah. right? And then uh, unit labor costs. And uh, last week we had the employment cost index uh, that I believe uh, was in line around 4%. Uh, but wages are keeping up is the point. So and then the, yeah. the, the the other part is just home. Home prices are fine because yeah. there's no supply of housing. Uh, why is there no supply of houses? Everybody has less than 3% mortgage. They're locked in. So, like, like the, the, it's just becoming, like, it's like so tough yeah, it's to like, break it's like that cementing, inflation. right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And well, so at least it's not too bad what it's cementing at right now. It's not where they want it. Inflation, yeah, it's getting better. But what the, do we have? Year over year, CPI in June was three. Right, but that's a headline. Right, uh, the core yeah, what, uh, is, what was that? is higher. I think the core is, correct if I'm wrong, like around four, like yeah. mid, like low fours. That's not great. That's two percent target. So You're two hundred basis points away. <laughs> and when did the student loan forgiveness October. roll off? So that's October that's a big catalyst, right? Yeah. And you expect like. Should that have a positive impact on well, the average? The average student loan payment in the U.S. is around five hundred and fifty dollars a month. A month. Yeah. And so I don't know what portion of that is like federal versus private, but there's a lot of money that needs to get paid um, as a function of these student loans, uh, and that starts in October. So that should be a drag. That takes some out. But of at the end of the day, it's like if people have jobs right. and they have credit cards. And they can't buy homes anymore. So what else are they going to buy? Yeah. Uh, what else are they going to buy? Stocks. Stocks. Consumer goods. Consumer electronics. goods. Electronics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, uh, that's what, I mean, durable goods has shown, like, remarkable strength. It's like crazy. It's like, like, I can't buy a home. Like, so I can buy stuff. Buy? Yeah, stuff. Furniture. Literally. Yeah. Buy a new couch. I just bought a new couch. It's great, by the way. Um, Amazing. Let's let's talk about uh, the crypto, crypto markets a little Woo! bit. Let's so, get going. So there's been um, I, here's one thing that that happened earlier this week, right? There was this this um, motion to dismiss ruling in the Terraform Labs absolutely uh, yep SEC litigation, and the market was interested in this because in in the motion to dismiss again, just another of the SEC cases, the judge uh, specifically made a point to specifically reject the analysis put forth by the other judge in the Ripple ruling two or three weeks ago. Um, and so I, what was the reaction in markets generally to this? You know, um, I would say that it, it was fairly muted. That's what I thought uh, too. 
and because it seemed like it, a relatively big story, a relatively big story. Um, ultimately, where I thought you know you'd see the greatest impact was on Ripple because in the original ruling it moved a lot, right? Right, and so but you really haven't seen follow through on the Ripple side because technically they still did win their case. Well, yeah, it's just the, the precedent these, around the yeah, security stuff. That's right. These two cases like don't affect each, each other directly, other, correct? But it's more just but, like, well, we thought we had a, a positive ruling and yeah. question on how we test stuff. Yeah. And now we literally have the exact same federal district court, the Southern District of New York, just with a different ruling that's the opposite of it. So now we're just back to like square one of like no clarity. No clarity. Yeah. And fundamentally that should be bad for alts, right? right. Uh but you already had the moves. Um we're already down from we're 30, already over thirty K and we're yeah. already down from nineteen hundred ETH. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so that wasn't constructive. Um, and I think your point about judicial precedent and the lack of precedent that that ripple ruling now has is, yeah. is very meaningful. Yeah. Um, but I'd say the biggest piece of crypto news out there um, came from Michael Saylor, who in you know uh, recently announced you know by his company um, that he's going to be purchasing another you know 750 million bucks of Bitcoin potentially. <laughs> and so this guy uh, is going to own. All the Bitcoin. What does he have? One hundred and fifty thousand Bitcoin or something? He got it's a lot. Up there. It's He's one of the biggest. Two hundred now. Yeah, I mean, it's or something like that. definitely but one yeah. of the biggest stacks. Yeah. Of uh, coin. He's he's buying a lot. Um, and but, look, but that in his was credit, perceived... right? He's, he's kind of back too, like uh, yeah. at break even or whatever. His cost basis, he he's right around there. Yeah, it's like around twenty nine thousand five hundred. Yeah, it's yeah, pretty like wild that. strategy. It is, um, and I I respect it, and uh, I wish I had courage. <laughs> You know, maybe a fraction of that, that size. I know it yeah. takes a lot of courage yeah. to, to yeah, do does. what he's doing. Um, you don't think um, markets are reacting on the Litecoin having? <laughs> sorry, uh, no, <laughs> no. Uh, I think it's it's relevant, but just in the big picture, right? We just had uh, an exploit of Curve, right? Yeah, and the spillover um, has yet to be you know fully finalized, but you know I I think. You know, the fact that you saw you've seen huge reductions in um, TVL, TVL, some coin on, prices, yeah, yeah, DeFi prices, DeFi prices co collapsing. I mean, I think that's notable. That is notable. And and it, you know, I think it's notable in the sense of like market confidence in DeFi and some of these DeFi tokens. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I'm still waiting on, on kind of seeing the follow through from that. You know, I would think that, you know, part of the value of ETH or the value proposition of ETH is, is a very robust and secure DeFi uh, system. And, you know, that argument definitely took a little bit of a hit this week. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't I'm not as constructive on the ETH and ETH DeFi complex as I was a week ago at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. That and was a big so, that was a big deal. That story. That, that's that's a big deal. And fundamentally, like like the idea of security uh, and stableness yeah. like is crucial yeah. to uh, products that, that can't be the reason why this stuff isn't working. It it, it should it, like that's very mm -hmm. that, that puts a real um, dent in the in the armor, right? Right, and like no, it really hurts confidence when these types of exploits happen. That's curve two, right? Is the most important stablecoin money market basically. Or, and, and, yeah. and I think that money market model is one that we should have dropped in, you know, traditional uh, money markets. A, if it like, doesn't get hacked. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, why couldn't we have a euro yen like, you know, stable yeah. coin pool on there? Right? Everybody trading 24 like seven. Really, like, I would love to. There's, there's genuine innovation there. No, there's 
genuine. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. And like yield bearing stables, if that ever came about. Yeah. Like, and you'd put them like on chain and trade. Like, there's so much potential there. Yeah. Um, and so that's why it's a little deflating. Yeah. Uh, to be honest with you. Um, and so, you know, I think the trades are pretty easy. I mean, you have a guy that's about to buy 750 million bucks of Bitcoin and you have, you know, DeFi, you know, apparent, you know moving around here, moving yeah. around here and it's not looking great. So, you know, personally, I like Bitcoin higher and ETH not to go higher. All right. You heard it here. Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. As always, my friend, great to have you. Thank you. Let's go now to our guest, Matt Cutler, co-founder and CEO of Block Native. Um, Matt, it's great to have you on here. We've been chatting about trying to get this done for a while, and uh, you just got back from ECC in Paris, so it's a great time to connect. Thanks for coming on Galaxy Brains. You bet. My pleasure, and, and great to be here and uh, talking with you, Alex and Christine. Yeah, and, and we have Christine Kim here from Galaxy Research to join for this conversation. I'm so excited uh, to chat with you it's, guys. It's been a while since you've been on the podcast, so I'm great, great to have you back on. Uh, you've been busy. You've been too busy. I've been calling. Your assistant says you're not available. <laughs> Um, before we get into some really interesting topics with Matt, Matt, if you could set us up with what is Block Native, um, you know, and how has it evolved over time as Ethereum is always changing? Sure. So, uh, Block Native is a core infrastructure provider for the Ethereum ecosystem. Right now, uh, our infrastructure is about ten percent of all of Ethereum blocks get uh, passed through our relay and builders. Um, we're known particularly for doing what's known as mempool observability. So, all the ephemeral real-time data. Um, making sure that everybody in the ecosystem has has adequate access to that. We were founded more than five years ago, and we've been building infrastructure in Ethereum uh, ever since. But it's been quite an interesting journey. We started out as a completely different project, believe it or not, doing NFT games way back in the day. Wow. Um, uh, this was like early CryptoKitties days. And it was hard to use. And so we're a bunch of nerds and started to develop tools to make things easier to use and give more feedback about transactions. And what we learned was the NFT game we were building was kind of meh, but these developer tools were pretty cool and people kept asking for that. So we wound up evolving the company into a developer infrastructure uh, entity, changed the name to Block Native, and it's been uh, quite a journey ever since. And so we're feel really lucky to be doing what we're doing in the ways that we are. And um, it's been, it's never a dull moment in the world of Ethereum. That's for sure. I, it isn't. And I think when I first met you, um, you guys really, like you said, mempool observability, that really was your core. I think it was right when um, the blog came out about Ethereum being a dark forest, sort of the, the public discovery of MEV. And then also the uh, March 12th, 2020 situation that had happened with, um, you know, the nonce values being off and like all these transactions failing. Like, I remember that was something that with your tools, um, you could help mitigate. Right, people could could avoid that disaster on on March twelfth, um, but now with proof of stake, you guys are building blocks and relaying blocks. It's, it's all, it, that's a significant you know change beyond sort of a data analytics company. Yeah, it's interesting. We have been pretty ear to the ground and evolving with sort of as the market uh, progresses, we continue to to evolve the the organization. So. Uh, about 10 months ago or so now, there was the merge with the transition to proof of stake. This introduced this notion known as PBS, or proposer builder separation, sort of formalizing the outsourcing of block construction from uh, block proposal and validation to the network, basically creating a, a brand new market of uh, specialist actors who build blocks. By building a block, it's determining inclusion, exclusion, and ordering, literally what transactions get in, and then a whole bunch of necessary underlying infrastructure to uh, relay that to the network and to protect various actors from all sorts of bad outcomes. And uh, we made the determination that 
our global infrastructure and our expertise is pretty well suited for that class of problem, and that there are some pretty interesting economic opportunities that that we're going to be come online as a result. So we, I like to say, evolved into becoming a block builder and relay. In addition to all the stuff that we've been doing before, we, you know, we also operate probably the number one wallet connection library in the ecosystem called Web3 Onboard, which is used by many major dApps and DEXs and things like that. We provide the number one gas estimator in Ethereum. And so we've been doing nerd stuff to make Ethereum operate more predictably you know, for a long time now, and we plan to continue to do so. The nerd stuff isn't ending. Um, you guys just both got back from ECC. I mean, I'd love to hear some of your impressions, Matt, on on how that conference was. And, and, and maybe, uh, I don't know, did you guys see each other when you were there? It's, Paris is a big city. We were in the same room a few times. We unfortunately did not get a chance to catch up. So it was pretty hectic uh, as these sorts of events. So ECC is a a major ecosystem conference, the Ethereum Community Conference. It's usually in Paris. Next year is going to be in Brussels. Why? uh, Summer Olympics are going to be in Paris, so they got to move it. Mm -hmm. There, it is the core event, but there were, I think, over 200 side events surrounding it. So it was all over Paris. There was a, a... you know, everyone was there, quote unquote, everybody. And um, I think it was a very optimistic event. It was a very collaborative a series of events. There were some big themes that ran through it. Um, MEV or maximal extractable value was a major trend. And that's where Christine and I overlapped. There were uh, many events and parties and conferences and salons focused on various aspects of MEV. Um, I think MEV has gone from being a sort of esoteric and somewhat feared topic to being kind of a mainstream and understood topic. It's become a bit even pedestrian even. Um, and then account abstraction as enabled by ERC4337 was another major theme that was happening there. I'm sure there were other themes going on, but those are the two that I was paying attention to. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. I think those were two of the biggest themes. I mean, Vitalik and his main stage talk at ECC was entirely about the history of account abstraction. And um, MEV has just grown to be kind of like a uh, one of the biggest buzzwords, I feel like, in Ethereum protocol development. Um, I'd be curious to hear, though, Matt, a little bit more about some of the, the themes and narratives that came out of those two topics. Like around MEV, what were some of the themes that uh, caught you by surprise that you thought were um, new developments since the last time? Um, that we spoke about MEV and also around the topic of account abstraction, um, did you think that there was some meaningful coordination and development there that um, hadn't existed before ECC? Two, two big questions. So on, on the topic of MEV, um, uh, probably the biggest development that there's sort of news that came out of ECC was Uniswap X, which uh, Uniswap as a protocol is, I think, accounts for over 80% of the MEV value on Ethereum. And so uh, I have had this thesis for some time that the sleeping giants will awaken, that the um, existing sort of MEV ecosystem sort of supposes that wallets are going to be blind to it. They're just going to toss their transactions in the public mempool and hope for the best. And that the protocols are going to kind of not really worry about it. It's not their problem. And I, I felt that that was a pretty bad series of, series of assumptions. And so uh, I think it's very clear. So this has been a trend that's been going on for a while, but I think is, is quite stark at, at, uh, at ECC was most everybody is paying attention and they're doing things to help manage and mitigate and, and route MEV. And so it's gone from something that was sort of as dark forest and scary to something that's, you know, one of the engineering requirements for the next iteration. Um, I think we have more MEV aware infrastructure. That's what we do at Block Native, that people, that protocols and projects can tap into. And, you know, one of the things that we thought was going to be a big trend was this notion of MEV recirculation. So ultimately, 
you know, value is a consequence of user transactions, as in without a user conduct doing a transaction, there's no MEV, and that there would be this natural move towards uh, recirculating significant percentage of that value back. Uh, there is a new protocol uh, or infrastructure called MEV Blocker, which is led by the CowSwap team, which has seen some pretty rapid adoption. But if you look at the metrics there, they're not recirculating very much value at all. Like it's, it's just not a lot economically, but they are protecting a lot of transactions. So I think the theme right now is uh, private transactions are growing. We at Block Native have published data that shows you know, steady state Ethereum, about two to 3% of all transactions were private. And that has rapidly jumped to almost 15% of the network. Wow. And at least at one of the major events at Mev Day, uh, the audience surveyed suggests that that was, everyone expected that to grow to maybe 25 to 50% or even more. Mm. So I think private transactions and, and private mempools are a very clear trend and, and that will continue to grow and are probably constructive for users and protocols alike. Of course, they have problems and consequences as well, particularly on observability. So we we think that the, the stuff that we specialize in gets more complicated and more important. So we're excited about that. Um, I think the other thing too is, is MEV used to be kind of scary and it feels a whole lot less scary today. Um, it's become more professionalized. There's a smaller number of larger actors who exhibit exhibit greater control. Um, and I think it has always been perceived as somewhat of an existential threat to the decentralization of um, Ethereum. And it unquestionably remains that. And there are certain aspects of the infrastructure that we think are still pretty fragile in this regard. And we're at Block Native are trying to work with our peers to, to make them less so, but there's still a long way to go. And that's why this remains an area of very active research for the Ethereum Foundation. That's those are my top level observations about it. And by the way, like MEV used to be this tiny little thing in the corner or this one event that people would go to and like there was a major MEV event every single day of the week at ECC and there was a circuit of that. So it was, it was pretty interesting that way. That, that's my thoughts there. Anything you would add to that, Christine? Um, I would just, yeah, uh, highlight again that the MEV days were the most popular events at ECC. I think they were the hardest ones to get into um, with lines to get into them kind of like wrapping around the block. Um, so I was pretty surprised at that given the-, the Is this one of those things, like there was a meme that was like, um, there was some kid who uh, uh, like was the national in Canadian chess champion for like seven years in a row. And they were like, what, where are we as a society putting this kid to work? Like, please, is he building, is he gonna be an astronaut? Is he building rockets? Is he gonna solve world hunger? No, he's a quant at a hedge fund on Wall Street. And we're like, great. Like, is that what's happening in MEV? Is this like the 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 forefront, the smartest people right now are deep in the MV, MEV world? It's the most exciting, most interesting. See what I'm saying? Is it is it drawing in? Is that why it was so busy? And, and you can see I'm passing a little bit of judgment because it's like, oh, what a great use of like our br most brilliant minds. But anyway, is that... <laughs> to MEV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think MEV, um, the more people started to understand it, um, recognize that MEV as a concept, it just is so difficult to define and it touches like all aspects of Ethereum's protocol, um, not just the core protocol layer, but, you know, mempools, decentralized exchanges, um, centralized exchanges, decentralized, like that relationship. Um, so it's hard to find a topic around um, Ethereum where MEV is not involved. So account abstraction, I think, is another great example of where MEV plays a big role because you're some of the, the leading solutions for account abstraction involve like the use of an alternative mempool and MEV. Um, but I'd love to ask you also, Matt, a little bit more about the problems that you foresee around um, the fragmentation of the mempool as we start to see a growing um, number of private transactions being made on Ethereum, the growth of alternative mempools around account abstraction. And, you know, how does that how does that kind of 
decrease the transparency of the Ethereum blockchain and make it far more difficult for any one company really to to be able to give an accurate view of like uh, what's happening on the network and and uh, track say like censoring behavior on the network. Well, that's a great question, and so I'm going to answer this in three parts. Is first off. MEV is an intrinsic property of ordered transaction systems, period. It's not specific to Ethereum or anything else. So by the way, all transaction systems are ordered because it doesn't make any sense without ordering. You can't understand what settles and what doesn't. So uh, airline tickets, you know, MEV. Uh, Concerts, MEV. Uh, SEO, MEV. Uh, The difference in Ethereum is that it's more open and programmable, that historically MEV has been controlled by a single centralized actor who then captures all of it for themselves. Um, And Ethereum, it's not that way. So it gets a lot more attention here, but it's it's everywhere. Mm. Uh, Two is uh, there are two sides to these uh, public blockchain networks. One is an ephemeral data side, which are generally known as mempools. There are, there are aspects of Ethereum which are not technically called mempools, but they act that way. And these are places where sort of transactions go to be candidates for inclusion. So this is uh, pre-consensus or pre-chain. And today on Ethereum, there's really one uh, major mempool, the public mempool, the transaction pool. It's where when you assign a transaction, hit submit. And then you wait 15 plus seconds. What you're waiting is where your transaction is pending in the mempool to be included in the next block. Um, uh, there are private mempools today. In fact, there is a growing proliferation of private mempools. And these are basically mechanisms to communicate with block builders to include your transaction without everybody else in the peer-to-peer layer you know, being able to see it. Now, this construct of mempools is proven to be very popular and and very effective um, as we look out to the um, Ethereum roadmap, meaning it's a pretty great mechanism to have uh, untrusted actors submit candidates in for someone else to consider without creating denial of service attacks, without creating, you know, all sorts of sort of negative externalities that are typically associated with these sorts of relationships where you need some sort of buffer in between. So we have ERC-4337 account abstraction. Basically what happens here are users express um, uh, intent to transact using what's known as a user op. Where does that user op go? To this new idea called an alt mempool. Now, now you go from one mempool to two mempools, the public mempool and the alt mempool. But, but actually, the alt mempool is a misnomer because there can be an arbitrary number of alt mempools. Uh, the alt mempools are, are monitored and picked up by what are known as bundlers. And it's possible that each bundler will operate their own alt mempool. So now you have alt mempool fragmentation, where depending on which wallet you use and depending on which bundlers are supported with it, you may or may not get good propagation at the peer-to-peer layer. Um, as we look ahead to major network upgrades like 4844 or proto-dank sharding, there's uh, contemplation of new alt mempool, new mempools associated with gas prices. As we look down the road at ePBS, uh, which is the next generation, it's enshrined PBS, uh, there's this notion of a bid pool where builders will make bids directly in uh, rather than going through the relay network, which they do right now, and, and on and on and on. And so the good news is mempools work, mempools are proven, mempools scale, mempools have great decentralization properties, but they're not a panacea. They, they one, for instance, they lack observability. It's ephemeral. You don't know what happens. And this matters because on-chain data tells you what happened, but mempool data tells you why it happened. And of course, 
MEV is determined in the mempool and then gets expressed on chain. And so if you really want to understand why things are settling the way that they are, why outcomes are happening, why transactions get included or don't get included, why they revert, that, that you really need understanding of mempool data. And so uh, observability is a big challenge. And then as you add more mempools with more fragmentation, you just sort of geometrically uh, uh, make that more difficult, which you know we think is pretty interesting as a business opportunity as Block Native specializing in mempool observability. And we have a number of major um, uh, new capabilities that we'll be bringing online, both to encourage more research into uh, mempool observability related issues and to just make it easier for everyday users to access and understand and, and have visibility. Because today, for your average user, it's pretty hard to know what's going on in the mempool. And uh, therefore, you have some actors who are sophisticated who have better information than those who are using the network every single day. And that's basically an information asymmetry, which again, isn't great for the credible neutrality of the network. Hmm. Yeah, I think credible neutrality and um, all this talk around how to increase the censorship resistance of Ethereum is starting to become a much larger topic. At ECC, one of the main takeaways that I had was around um, Ethereum's governance and how protocol governance kind of continues to, to be a contentious topic um, in the Ethereum community. Curious to know if you can share a little bit more about some of those future capabilities and products that will help improve the visibility of an increasingly fragmented mempool and, um, yeah, hopefully give people um, a solution for what could start to become a dark forest again. Um, I, unfortunately, I can't announce anything here, but I can say today we operate the ecosystems only mempool explorer. You can get that off our website, explore.blocknative.com. Um, but it's kind of a nerd tool. Like you, you put in an address or a smart, con you know, wallet or smart contract or a transaction hash, and we will share back with you uh, future facing transaction state changes. So when you do a transaction, you can actually set up a it can be entirely automated. It's pretty cool, and you can get push notifications into your favorite messaging app around. A new transaction has been detected that involves your wallet address. Its status has changed. It's been confirmed, for instance. Um, but it gives you like structured JSON. It's not really for regular people. And it's only for future-facing changes. It doesn't tell you currently what's in the mempool. And it doesn't tell you historic information. So as you might imagine, I think one of the areas that we're excited about is to basically uh, take these nerd tool, you know, advanced capabilities and, and make them much more accessible for everyday mm. users and, and much easier to um, to, you know, uh, leverage and do more useful things with. And we're working with a variety of external parties to sort of fund that uh, effort as sort of some public goods. And, um, you know, again, we'll have announcements to make between now and the end of the year where we'll be pushing some of this stuff out. Um, Alex mentioned uh, uh, Black Thursday. So in, in mm -hmm. March 2020, there was a major exploit of the um, MakerDAO uh, right. uh, CDP protocol. And we were deeply involved in that investigation and, and really were the only entity that showed up with historical mempool data because we have global infrastructure, quite a massive set of global infrastructure that not only detects uh, all transaction state changes in the mempool, but archives it. And uh, we have a massive data set that goes back to November 2019 um, that we continue to build you know, every second of every day that has been very helpful for diagnosing various 
attacks and exploits or weird phenomena, but we have a pretty small data science team. And so we actually have a limited capability of extracting value from that mempool data archive. So we are very interested to uh, allow a lot of the community to go hands-on with that data set and to drive necessary research into topics like EPBS, for instance. So um, that's another initiative that we're working on is making sure that the research community has access to data that they need to both understand past phenomena and make better design decisions moving forward. That's really cool to hear. Um, Thank you for sharing more color on that, because I think that really is something that is needed in the Ethereum ecosystem right now. Um, And I'd love to to kind of switch gears and talk a little bit more about the economic opportunities that um, Block Native has already kind of made with running its own relay and builder. Um, So I know that we've had past discussions around how big that economic opportunity really is. Um, I'm curious to know if any discussions at ECC made you change your mind around whether or not those economic opportunities for running a relay, running a builder, um, will continue to shrink in the future, or if you think that there's some opportunities around relay designs with collateralizing some ETH from searchers that will potentially um, increase the pie in terms of um, running these relays and builders and having that be a long-term sustainable business. Okay, so two separate topics there. So uh, on stage at MEV Day, I made somewhat of a controversial statement, which is there's this complex MEV supply chain slash value network with all these different actors, but they can you can effectively boil everybody down into one of three categories. There are validators who make money, there are trader-like entities that make money, and there are suckers. <laughs> That's one and, way to and put it. <laughs> the reason why I say that is that basically so far that the economics have devolved into trader-like entities, searchers, traders, sex dex arbitrage, stuff like that, and validators. And basically nowhere else in the, in the value chain is there much appreciable economics. And this is problematic, deeply problematic, because there are actors in the value chain who are, who are in the supply chain who are necessary for the orderly operation of the chain. Um, probably the one that I care most about is the relay network. So today, 95% of all Ethereum blocks are outsourced uh, using uh, the PBS. Now, today, under the, the, under the merge, there, the PBS network is actually a sidecar called MevBoost, which was uh, designed and implemented by a, a project called Flashbots. And uh, it's entirely outside of the protocol. And every single one of those blocks that gets the, that gets you know, included 95% has to go through a relay. And what relays basically do is protect validators from rogue builders and protect builders from validators stealing the work that they're doing. So they play a really important and necessary um, uh, uh, role in the orderly operation. But there are no economics for relays. Relays are totally free. There's no, no charge at all. And today there are maybe six or seven independent relay operators that account for 98% of the network. And so it's pretty centralized and with no explicit economics associated. By the way, it's a very hard job. This is big infrastructure. It's expensive infrastructure. And there is a whole bunch of risk associated with operating a relay, meaning if you miss a slot, the validators expect to be refunded and there's regulatory risk and it's just hard to do. And it's 24 seven, it's stressful and there's literally no reward. So why would any long-term entity enter into a hard technical problem, which is necessary for the operation of the network, that is zero economic upside and a whole bunch of economic risk. 
And, and I ask myself this every day because we at Block Native are, are, are participating in the supply chain. We're neither a validator nor a trader, right? And so it's, we are in many ways and quite objectively are financing the operation of Ethereum itself. And so we are trying to work with the various members of the ecosystem to say this is not sustainable and uh, creates negative incentives. And that really what we want to do is we want to increase participation in the relay network. We want to increase relay diversity. And to do so, we need to, inc- to introduce relay economics. Um, this has proven to be, at least to me, a shockingly controversial topic for various reasons. Um, and you know, I think the thing is, is while the current... MevBoost ecosystem isn't perfect by any means. It is working. In fact, it's it's wildly fulfilled its design objectives of preventing irreversible validator centralization. So it's sort of hard to argue with that. But at current course and speed, you know, privately funded entities like us aren't going to be able to do this ad infinitum. And there's a huge opportunity cost. We could take the, the engineers and expense that we're doing on relay operation and devote it to other things that may have revenue opportunities. So, and this is a broader issue and trend with Ethereum. And by the way, you know, probably across the board, which is uh, if there's not great economics for anyone other than traders, then the network becomes fundamentally a trading network. Right. And maybe that's inevitable. Maybe that that there's just no way to avoid traders trading and that's the highest margin activity. So all of these systems will eventually devolve into just trading systems. Um, But I worry about, you know, users being an afterthought and LPs being an afterthought and infrastructure operators being an afterthought. I don't think it's great for Ethereum. I think Ethereum will be a a better and more uh, diverse uh, ecosystem with good infrastructure economics. Now, of course, I'm an infrastructure operator, so it's easy for me to argue that. I'm definitely biased in all of this. But it does strike me as this is a major centralization vector that we're going to need to address. Um, and we're trying to work with with everybody across the ecosystem, including the Ethereum Foundation itself, to, to address that. Mm-hmm. Now, building is a different topic. So building are the, the actors who uh, build the blocks and then compete to be the most valuable block. And builders do have potential for positive economics because you can build a block of a certain value, but then you can bid less than that value. And so as a builder, you then capture the spread. Okay? Now, block native is, is a builder relay. So we're not a trader, but we operate builders and we operate a relay. And we went into uh, Mev Boost and the merge thinking that there would be uh, really interesting economics for uh, credibly neutral uh, builders. And so far, that thesis has not played out in the slightest. Um, that, that basically the builders that really dominate are uh, searcher builders, so vertical integration between trader-like entities and builders, and and a lot of that has to do specifically with what's known as sextex arbitrage. Mm-hmm. So arbitraging between the price of assets on various centralized exchanges that can move very quickly versus decentralized exchanges that can update you know every twelve seconds, and. It's interesting. Um, the guys over at Special Mechanisms Group, uh, Max Resnick and his team, recently published some research that said uh, when volatility of certain asset pairs on Binance goes up, specific builders win 75% of the blocks. And so uh, I, I made traders. this point at, at MevDay, which is if we look at the broad data on builders, there's a lot of builders that that get share, but but it may not be quite as 
diverse as we think, because in any given moment, there are external factors which may determine which is the one builder which is likely to be dominant under those circumstances. So regardless of what you're doing at any one given moment, you may only have a single builder that you are forced to work with. And that, of course, is centralizing because depending on the policies of that builder, depending on that builder likes you or not, you may or may not get favorable inclusion. And so, again, these are factors that we think need more research and, and we want to increase uh, economic incentives to ensure uh, participation and diversity. This has been fascinating because I, I the, the amount of development when you talk about, um, and, and like that's why I asked that first question, Matt, about the evolution of Ethereum and how it's affected block native. I mean, you guys are riding this wave, right? It's affected you dramatically and you've been a part of it throughout um, so many changes. So much is done. I've been, I, I harass Christine sometimes with this question about um, you know, doesn't every new change introduce like new problems? And Christine gave a really interesting answer, which is definitely yes, right? Every um, like the merge introduced a, a slew of new issues to solve, but that in her opinion, the the magnitude of the problems is decreasing over time, right? So that they're sort of, and I, I don't know if that's true. I'd love your quick take on if that's true before we wrap. I have a couple closing questions I'd like to ask you too, Matt. But is that right? Because, you know, you introduce, you know, proof of stake. Now you've got this whole problem with the validator networks. Like then you got to like you want to, OK, you want to decentralize the proposer block builders. Now you get talking about the how do you pay for the relayers like every sort of. But are, is in your mind is is the Ethereum development like still moving in a direction that is like net improving over time, despite these new problems that keep popping up? So, I mean. Ethereum is fundamentally a bet on technological progressivism. And so as technology evolves, it solves new one set of issues and potentially new issues get raised. And I think we can see that across all technologies. This is by no means unique to Ethereum as a technological movement or phenomena. I think in general, I frame this as decentralization is a journey, not a destination. And so it's just continual process of, hey, we're eliminating these risks and these problems. And then there's, you know, new, you know, you push on the balloon in one spot and it pops up in another. And we're, you know, sort of iterating through all of that as we go on a journey of increased um, scalability, stability, participation, you know, network throughput, et cetera. And so, um, I don't know if the problems are getting bigger or smaller or staying the same. It's kind of an interesting <laughs> way to frame it. Um, they're certainly changing. And, you know, I think the one thing that the Ethereum ecosystem has proved pretty, you know, definitively is it can ship software, which, by the way, it's hard to do. And so uh, the, you know, if Ethereum were to freeze in time at, at this moment, it probably doesn't end well. But uh, if Ethereum continues to make the upgrades that are on its roadmap and in, you know, a reasonably organized fashion, I think we'll be in pretty good shape. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, Again, like uh, it's hard to foresee the point where we go, yep, we've solved it. It's done. I've, right? I've talked about, I've joked about this, that Vitalik comes out, he waves a flag. Congrats, everyone. We did it. Right. Like <laughs> you don't yeah. foresee that happening. It, what, what, you know what we call like uh, in, particularly in Bitcoin, like protocol ossification. You don't think that ever does that ever happen? It's, you know, I always say it's the difference, like maybe in five years, which in Ethereum time is equivalent to forever, right? I mean, if we (laughs) think about where we were five years ago versus where we're going to be five years from now, like there's without any question, five years of upgrades planned, right? So certainly, you know, ossification seems unlikely in the next five years, at least sort of end to end ossification, maybe certain layers get sort of settled out. Um, but you know, it's always interesting to play the game of two years ago. What did we think? How did it play out? Right. And by the way, you can do this across ecosystems. As you say, everybody th- group think was X, right. And you go, actually group think was pretty wildly wrong. Like it's not how it played out as all. All right. So here we are today looking forward and saying, here's what's going to happen. And the only thing I know is we're wrong. 
right? How we're wrong was sort of TBD. And, you know, uh, at least the bet of Ethereum is you can, you know, uh, continue to improve and evolve and, and, and address the situations. And I think the big risk is you paint yourself into a corner where you create some sort of thing, which is irreversible, which by the way, was the whole thing about MEV boost was that because of the, the centralizing forces of MEV, if, if it wasn't addressed immediately at the merge, then it was quite possible and perhaps even likely that the validator group would become, uh, uh, you know, forever centralized. Yep. And and so, again, that's one of the, the trade-offs that was made. Uh, Matt, before we wrap um, what has been a fascinating conversation, uh, something I've been asking people lately, mostly because it feels like we're sort of on a precipice of a reignited fervor. Obviously, if, if you go to ETHCC, if I go to – I was in Nashville at Bitcoin Park, which is a fantastic community uh, of Bitcoin developers and builders – we feel that there's energy, no doubt, mm -hmm. but it also feels like in the market, even in some of the regulatory stuff happening, not just in the U.S., but globally, that maybe we're on the precipice of a, of a sort of – I don't want to say even a bull run, but on a, another reinvigoration of this ecosystem. So what gets you excited sort of in the near, near term for uh, – whether it's Ethereum or Block Native or this ecosystem? Like what, what are you looking forward to right now? What's getting you hyped? I would very much agree that there's a lot of positive energy across many ecosystems that's that's well earned and and I think that uh public perception is beginning to to shift and and we're starting to to see the positive movement at least in the US regulatory environment that we need. Um I think near term, you know, account abstraction 4337 is super exciting. I gave a talk about this at ETCC um where I basically said like, you know, just imagine when your credit card can be a non-custodial wallet. And now you can enable all sorts of experiences that aren't able before. And the, the example I gave is, you know, meet Alice. She's a super fan of this m hypothetical music artist named Sailor Twift. <laughs> and, you know, she's a top listener. She contributes. She's got all the merch, right? And Sailor Twift wants to recognize her fans and wants to basically give her best fans differentiated experiences. But But the existing infrastructure that she has isn't really like useful, like she can't use Ticketmaster, for instance, to do that. Well, she could issue an NFT, right? But then that requires Alice to have a crypto wallet. And Alice doesn't know the first thing about crypto and is probably going to have a bad experience and screw it up. And so just imagine a world where Sailor Twift can do a deal with Spotify to basically drop an NFT into the wallet on, into the credit card on file, right? You have Alice showing up for the show because she's a fan. She shows her you know, wallet on her phone and they say, oh, hey, guess what? You qualify for the special VIP experience, right? And she has provable ownership of that. She can transfer, sell it, share it with the friends, et cetera, right? And it's all like super easy and super simple. It's better for the artist. It's better for Spotify. It's better for Alice. All made possible by, you know, the these new principles of crypto and Web3, but abstracted away through 4337. Like, this is the big unlock. And we talk a lot about it in the Ethereum ecosystem of onboarding the next billion users. That's either going to happen bottom up organically. We're going to have some killer apps that everyone needs to have. Or it's going to happen top down. We're going to meet users where they are in the existing financial system and, and bring them on board with differentiated experiences. And we think there's a huge, I personally, there's a huge amount of experience or opportunity for growth for TradFi players to basically deliver new experiences that drive more transactions, greater value, better retention in this brand new continent that's being unlocked called Web3, right? And so I think the setup here is really quite positive for 
uh, this type of action. And, yeah. and, and of course, along the way, as we talked about, it introduces all sorts of interesting new infrastructure problems and scalability problems that entities like Block Native are set up to, to service. So that's what gets me excited about the, the next chapter of Web3. Thank you, Matt. Very interesting. Matt Cutler, co-founder, CEO of Block Native. Thank you so much for joining Galaxy Brains. Thank you, Matt. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's episode of Galaxy Brains. Thank you so much to our guest, Matt Cutler from Block Native and my friend, Christine Kim from Galaxy Research for her help with that interview. And of course, to our friend, Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. That's all we've got this week. Have a safe weekend and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.